Vita Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. Hello, everyone. This That's is a wrap Monty, for this episode of... Uh, today's uh, uh, podcast originally was advertised and planned to be one that would discuss the Biamonte home candida urine test. However, in the last few days, we came across some very interesting and somewhat startling information that we do want to share with everyone. So that subject of the home urine test is being preempted so we can bring you this interesting information. If you were to go online on Google and do a search for thallium and kale, you'd be very surprised at some of the information you're going to find. Um, the information I'm going to present to you here today is uh, information that comes directly from a patient, a patient's experience. And when you go on the internet and you do a, a search on this subject of kale and thallium, you're not going to find everyone agreeing on this. But we're going to tell you a real life story today that occurred with one of our patients. First of all, just to get you out of mystery of this uh, thallium and kale thing, uh, kale everyone knows as a superfood vegetable. Thallium, which is spelled T-H-A-L-L-I-U-M, is a toxic element. It's a toxic element which has been used in different pesticides and rat poisoning in insect uh, repellents. Um, it's also a byproduct of petroleum, the petroleum industry. And it's had, it's had other uses, but essentially most of its uses commercially have been as some type of a toxin to ward off insects or, or bugs or some such thing. You can go online and, of course, do uh, research on thallium. You'll learn quite a lot about it on Wikipedia. But the controversy that's occurred regarding thallium is it appears that many of the soils in America may be thallium toxic. And this is, of course, quite bad because thallium will cause medical issues. This is, again, controversial. As I said in the beginning, not everyone is going to agree with the information that I'm giving you here today. But we are going to give you an actual case study to, uh, to use as an example. And then it's up to you to make up your own mind or do more additional research as to what the truth is. What I'm going to propose to you is the theory that we have at this point. Based on the fact, or based on the assumption, let's say, that many of the, much of the soil, agricultural soil where they grow vegetables, is thallium toxic, 
It appears that farmers may be growing vegetables in those soils, which tend to be the ones that are the best at removing thallium or uptaking thallium. Now, someone who is a skeptic could conclude that the reason why farmers grow vegetables that have a very strong ability to, to absorb thallium from the soil is because they're trying to rid their soils of the thallium accumulation that's there. And of course, when they turn around and sell these vegetables, they're not telling anyone that these vegetables are contaminated with thallium. So one who was a skeptic could conclude that in an effort to rid his soil of thallium toxicity, the farmer is growing vegetables and the, the vegetables that seem to be universally agreed upon on most of the blogs and websites that I've seen are kale as a foremost one. And kale is getting a lot of um, attention on this because kale is a superfood. People are all running around singing the praises of kale and it's become somewhat of a fad. So if in fact kale is, is um, simultaneously a superfood, but then also contaminated with thallium, that would be news because the kale industry has become a popular thing. Cabbage, spinach, cauliflower, and broccoli, and then also green beans appear to be foods which are absorbing a lot of thallium from the soils. And again, it's assumed by the skeptics that the farmer is deliberately growing these vegetables in these soils to rid his soil of this excess thallium. Then we're, they're turning around and selling these vegetables to people without telling them or warning them that they're grown in thallium toxic soil. Uh, there are other foods implicated as well. You can find this out as you search this subject yourself online. But if one was not to be a skeptic, one very just easily could conclude that uh, in some soils in this country, there is an excess of thallium. The thallium is getting into the vegetables and people who are unlucky enough to be eating vegetables exclusively or mostly from soils which are contaminated with thallium are going to have medical problems, which are not really going to resolve until this is discovered. There is a, a biologist, I believe he is, a researcher named Ernie Hubbard, who has written quite a lot about this, and he's had his own personal experiences with people who have become thallium toxic due to their diet, due to actually consuming the foods that are high in thallium. And you can do a Google search for Ernie Hubbard and also a YouTube search, and you'll come up with uh, some of his, his presentations and lectures where he explains this. Um, in giving you the skeptics side, I'm painting for you probably the, the worst scenario, which is more of the um, conspiracy theory uh, <laughs> viewpoint, let's say. Uh, but on the other hand, we could also say that this is just uh, um, a matter of incident and no one's really doing anything deliberately. It's just a haphazard problem. So which, which way you tend to want to believe on this, if you want to go with the conspiracy theory, or if you want to go more in the middle of the road and saying uh, that this is something that, which was not totally known and uh, there is no malice here, well, we can, we can do that too. Um, I'm more concerned today with just presenting the facts 
and the case history of the patient who helped us discover this. Uh, so you can make up your own mind as to what you believe. Uh, the patient who helped us discover this, the, his, his name is Bert. I'm not going to give his last name out over the air, but his first name is Bert. We owe him a deal of gratitude for helping us to find this data because this is likely to help many other people. And Bert had been a Candida patient for quite a while. He had uh, gotten very good success with our program many years ago. And fortunately, circumstances caused a relapse. He came back to us, uh, I think back in May or so. And uh, at this point, when he came back to us, he was concerned, as was his nutritionist, that he was also suffering from some type of a toxic metal syndrome because there was some evidence in testing and his reactions to food that there might be so. Um, we had Bert start on our program, and for those of you who are patients, you understand the, uh, what that means. Essentially, Bert went through phase zero into phase one, and Bert was not really having any improvement at all. In fact, he was still being far too reactive to certain foods, and we did make some corrections in some of the things that he was doing, which he had been doing, which were not working with the treatment that were actually making certain things worse. So that was, that was fine, but that really didn't prove to be anything that was substantial. Um, so we ran a battery of tests on Bert, which is something that we will do standardly on people who are not getting well. And this is an editorial comment at this point. When a person's on any type of treatment for any malady, illness, disease, whatever, if they find that they're not improving at all, yet the disease has been identified, it's up to the practitioner now to do a battery of different tests to find out what's interfering with the treatment. The patient who's not that spirited is apt to just give up and either go to another doctor or go on the internet and research something else and now uh, get on the bandwagon that he has some other disease other than one that the doctor already identified. But if a practitioner identifies clearly a illness that a person has, and if he's on a, a treatment, which should be correct to address the illness, but yet the person's not getting better, there's something else wrong. And 90% of the time, the only way you're going to find out what else is wrong is by testing the patient and doing a wide battery of tests. I recommend in those cases hormonal tests, neurotransmitter tests, toxic metal tests, a vitamin and mineral or nutritional tests, tests for other types of organisms the person may have, like different types of parasites or harmful bacteria. Perhaps test them for leaky gut syndrome. You have to test them for multiple things, which are not all in the same vein. In other words, you would test the person for leaky gut syndrome and also toxic metals, which are two things not necessarily in the same vein. And the reason why you're doing this is an effort to troubleshoot and to find out what's interfering with this patient's treatment. Of course, the practitioner always asks the patient, are you actually doing the treatment? That's the first question that usually gets overlooked. Find out what the patient is actually doing. Because you may be telling the patient to take one pill a day and he might be taking 10. Or he may be taking one pill every other day or some, something like that. So once you find out what the patient is actually doing, and if that meets with the practitioner's satisfaction, then you must go into a full battery of tests to find out what's interfering with the treatment. You don't just give up. You don't just go to another doctor. You don't just say, I'm going to live with it because none of that is necessary 
if you apply science. Well, in Bert's case, we, Bert was very honest, of course, because Bert wanted to get well. So Bert would tell us exactly what he was doing. We would correct whatever we needed to correct. And when none of that worked, as I said, we then did a battery of tests on Bert and we found that his levels of thallium were very high. Now, typically when a doctor tests a patient and he finds a toxic metal really elevated, the doctor must sit down with the patient and go over a list of sources of potential exposure that this patient may have had to the toxic metal in order to find where he acquired this element so you can then stop his exposure to it. Sometimes you find people are exposed to toxic metals due to their work environment or a hobby or some such thing. Well, you have to identify the exposure. Uh, and this is a very important point. The person may have been exposed to this toxic metal many years ago. Um, I'll never forget the case I had. This was actually one of the, probably one of the first 20 patients I ever had when I got out of school and started practicing. It was a lawyer from Brooklyn, a gentleman named Herbert. And Herbert came to me because he had an asthma problem. So running some tests on him and identifying issues he had metabolically, I was able to balance out his system and his asthma cleared up in about two months and was very, very stable. But Bert conti uh, uh, Herbert continued to come in and have, have a, a test done to monitor himself and make sure he was taking the correct vitamins. He wasn't taking too much of something or not enough of something else. And after about, I think, 14 months of working with Herbert, the testing started to show an extreme level of lead in his, in his tests. Um, he showed lead in a urine test and also in a hair tissue mineral test. So I asked him what the possible uh, exposure that he might have would be. And I had actually quite a long list, like a checklist that I went over with him in the, in the appointment of all these possible sources of lead. And sure enough, he was not exposed to any of them. Well, the last one on the list was Grecian Formula 44. Many of you people may not know what that is. Grecian Formula 44, as far as I know, may, be still, it may still be sold. It's essentially a man's hair dye, a very old one for that matter. And the principal ingredient in it, as far as I know, is lead acetate. Now, in looking at Herbert and asking him this final question, you'd have to chuckle because Herbert's hair was white. As white as a ghost. So I said to him, well, Herbert, you know, I, I see your hair is white. You're obviously not dyeing your hair. But the last item on this list is Grecian Formula 44. So Herbert looks at me and he says, well, I haven't used that in about 15 years. It turns out he used it daily for about 15 years and then stopped using it. Well, what, what I then learned was that it was possible for toxic metals to stay in someone's system for many years and just sit there until something you do metabolically jars them loose or starts to chelate them out of your system. It just happened to be that the list of nutrients that I had Herbert on to deal with his asthma would have been the exact same list of nutrients you would give someone if they were lead toxic in order to detoxify them of the lead. 
So we, I would then theorize that it probably took 12 months or so of Herbert being on these nutrients for the nutrients to start drawing the lead that had stored on his bone from the Grecian Formula 44 that he stopped using 15 years ago, that he had used for 15 years, to now come out and actually show on the test. So Herbert continued to show elevated levels of lead for about six months, and then the lead levels went back down to normal. And during that time, he did experience some minor symptoms of someone who was lead toxic or lead detoxifying, which was very interesting. The fact that he was suddenly demonstrating these symptoms backed up the information that the test is telling me that, yes, there was lead present, and apparently his body was excreting the lead because there was, as I said, no exposure source, and the nutrients he, were, he had been taking were the exact ones you would give a person to get rid of lead. So the example I pose is that you can have toxic metals in your body for years and years and years, and then they may suddenly come out if you're doing something to improve your health or if you accidentally take the right set of nutrients that pulls them out. Now in Bert's situation, Bert's levels of thallium were very, very high. Bert was not exposed to any source of thallium, and to our knowledge in going over his history, he had not been exposed to any source of thallium. What Bert did independently on his own is he went out to research what foods possibly were high in thallium. And Bert then came across this controversy that I'm now discussing with you. Um, Bert went through the different lists of the foods most probably high in thallium. And to his surprise, he found out that these were the vegetables that he was almost exclusively eating in his diet. His diet was uh, mostly made up of the vegetables kale, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, green beans, and spinach, which on many of the websites that discuss this controversy are rated as being some of the top vegetables that will draw thallium out of the soil and will then capture it, and it will then be locked into the food that you're eating. So what Bert then started to do is, oh, this is again, this is totally on his own. Bert then began to research uh, how you would eliminate thallium from the body. Uh, what Bert found is that potassium chloride was, is one of the most effective countermeasures to get the body to excrete thallium. Now, since that time of speaking to Bert about this, we've also learned that zinc, copper, and iron are also very strong antagonists to thallium. And as in most any toxic metal cases, the sulfur-bearing amino acids, which would be cysteine, uh, methionine, these amino acids, which are sulfur-bearing when you combine them with the nutrients, the basic nutrients, which are known to help detoxification pathways like glutathione and vitamin C, and some of the basic ones there, are going to assist the elimination of the toxic metal. But very specifically, potassium chloride, and this is also discussed on Wikipedia if you look up thallium there, you'll see that they do, they do talk about potassium chloride and its role in being an antagonist to thallium and an excreter of thallium. So Bert stopped all these vegetables in his diet. He cut them out completely and started taking a program of the potassium chloride. And when we spoke to Bert the last time, this is the first time that we had a stellar report from him on how he was doing. It was appearing now 
that the thallium was being removed from his body, that the entire Candida protocol that he was on was now finally working the way it was anticipated to work, and he was now getting very good results. Most of his symptoms, generally I would say he reported all of his symptoms had dramatically improved, and everything was working pretty much to hand. And what did, he, what did he change now to accomplish this? If we look at this for a second, well, the, what the man did was he stopped eating vegetables, which we assume are high in thallium, since that's what we're hearing that's plausible on the internet. And he started taking nutrients that would help his body get rid of the thallium. So uh, what we then did is we repeated the toxic metal urine test, and we found that his thallium had dropped. The thallium in the urine test is still high, which is showing he's still excreting thallium. But because he's cut off his exposure to thallium and is continuing to take the nutrients that help excrete the thallium, we would have to interpret the drop in his thallium as uh, and now just purely an excretion. His body is now getting rid of the thallium that he had in excess. Uh, we also found the fecal stool test to be of great use. His stool samples also showed elevated thallium, which, of course, is an excretion. Generally, urine toxic metal tests and stool toxic metal tests are showing you pretty much purely an excretion of the element. If you see that you're high in an element in your urine or in your stool, this is because you're excreting that element out through the urine and stool. Hair tissue analysis is a different story. With a hair tissue analysis, if you're high in an element, this is showing storage. This is showing a buildup of the element in your tissues as hair represents a tissue. And in studies that were done in the last 30, 40 years repeatedly, hair was shown to correlate with liver values of elements very nicely. Uh, with one particular study on copper was, I think, one of the more famous ones where the uh, level of copper in the hair correlated very nicely with the level of copper in liver tissues. Blood tests are a completely different story. Blood tests and hair analysis or urine toxic metal tests or fecal toxic metal tests are never going to agree. And that's, that's unfortunate because a blood test is usually what most doctors run to as their stable datum. The reason why it's expected that a blood test and these other types of tests, hair, urine, stool, will not agree, is because blood is a mode of transportation. The blood is not a source of, of excretion for elements. What the role of the blood is to essentially transport elements. So blood is a medium of transportation. It's not a medium of excretion, nor is it a medium of storage. The body deliberately will remove excessive amounts of heavy metals from the blood and store them in the tissues because if these elements were to stay in the blood, they could damage glands and organs. So deliberately, your body will not show high levels of toxic metals unless you have acute exposure at the time. If your exposure is chronic or your exposure was in the past, you're apt to find these toxic metals in your urine, your stool, or in your hair, the hair again showing chronic accumulation in your tissues, but you're not going to find them in your urine, uh, sorry, in your blood, because the body is going to remove them from the blood. So at this point, our patient, Bert, is doing much, much better. 
being on the thallium treatment. And as I was, uh, as I was saying before, if we look at what the difference is in the patient, the only thing that the patient changed was to avoid the foods that were high in thallium and go on some simple nutrients that would help his body excrete the thallium and block its functions. This is the only thing he changed. We didn't change antifungals. We didn't change much. We didn't change anything. Um, so from a, if you're going to look at this from a, a double blind viewpoint, so to speak, we have him proceeding on the program. Then the only change we make is we have him avoid the vegetables that are said to be high in thallium and have him take some very simple substances to help excrete and block the thallium and the patient improves dramatically. So, by, so you would then conclude eliminating vegetables and taking this basic potassium chloride now allows the candida treatment to work. Well, why would that be? Only way I could see it is if he is one of these cases where the excess thallium actually applies to him. Now, if you go online and if you look at the information that's there, you'll find that for the most part, this is being poo-pooed by the average blogger or the average uh, magazine article and whatnot. Uh, there's more people are saying that this is something that's being blown out of proportion than are agreeing that it's a problem or something to be uh, concerned with. This is unless you are someone like myself or Mr. Ernie Hubbard, who have actually come across patients where you have actual evidence who have excess, um, excess amounts of thallium. And in the case of our patient, Bert, the evidence that we have here is amazing in his case because we have a person who is not improving on the treatment until the one single thing that was changed was his avoidance of thallium exposure from these vegetables or if we're going to be fair about it, we'll say potential exposure. And the fact that he, again, took simple nutrients like potassium chloride to start blocking and excreting the thallium. There was nothing else that he did that was different. Plus, we have the evidence that in his stool, his urine, and his hair, he all had elevated levels of thallium in each. So perhaps he is unlucky enough to be exposed to vegetables which are being grown in soils that are high in thallium, and perhaps the majority of the public are not exposed to these. But this is most certainly a case of someone who has been. So I invite everyone to go on the internet and to look at this, because this is not information that's going to be volunteered by the food industry. Your, your interpretation of the information will be what it is, but it's something most definitely to research and to consider. Uh, we're going to investigate a way for people to do a simple test at home which could measure thallium in the urine. Now, I don't know if we're going to be successful at this, but it's something that we're beginning to research <clears throat> the possibility because this could tell us how widespread the problem is. <coughs> Excuse me. And some of the blogs out there that discuss this, they say that this is being blown way out of proportion and it's not a majority of... Uh, of the farmland that's exposed to thallium, that it's been a few isolated cases. And that very well may be, but I can certainly tell you that in the isolated case of our patient, Bert, it made the entire difference between his candida treatment being a, being a failure and a success. If you're interested in going online and doing some research on this, what I'd recommend 
you put in as far as keywords, the obvious keyword is thallium. And then uh, you could put thallium and kale in, or you could just put thallium and vegetables in, or thallium toxicity in vegetables. Any combination of those keywords is going to give you quite a lot to read. And then you can make up your mind and decide on your own what you think is really going on. As I said, the food industry is never going to volunteer this information. One of the things that we have found is that it doesn't seem to make any difference whether or not it's organic or if it's a supermarket, your standard supermarket food. As a matter of fact, from, from some of the statistics that I saw online where they did tests on food, it actually seemed like organic kale might have been a little bit higher in thallium in general. You know, but again, that, that in itself also could be an isolated case. So that's going to be the end of the Candida Chronicles for today. I'm glad we were able to bring you this uh, somewhat breakthrough information because it certainly is interesting. And we invite you to come and join us again next, uh, this coming Thursday, where we will discuss the Candida urine test. Thank you again. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.